As we near the end of 2020, the pandemic continues its destructive path around the world. New York City was hit especially hard by the virus. The Elmhurst Hospital in Queens was described as apocalyptic as they saw so much sickness and death. This part of Queens is the most ethnically diverse neighborhood in America, and also among the most densely populated. Brad and Sarah Wall moved to this neighborhood within sight of the Elmhurst Hospital because they saw great potential for the gospel to go to the nations. I'm Michael Crane, and this is Mission City, a podcast about the urban revolution and how the church can serve the city. I'm a researcher and writer on the intersection of cities and the Christian faith. My guest today, Brad Wall, will walk through how he goes about reaching the least reached in a global city like New York. Hi, everybody. We're excited to have Brad Wall as our guest this week. Brad and his wife, Sarah, helped co-found Global Gates eight years ago with a vision of reaching the nations through Global Gateway Cities. Since its inception, Global Gates has grown from four initial families to over 40 families, serving in 20 cities around the world. Brad now serves as Associate Director and the New York City South Asian Outreach Team Leader. Thanks, Brad, for being on. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Michael, thanks for having us. It's always great to be able to share and talk about um, cities and unreached peoples, and so I really appreciate the opportunity. We've been um, living in New York now for a little over 10 years. In New York City, prior to that, we were in Southeast Asia in a major metropolitan city of around 8 million, always with the desire to see the gospel take root among unreached peoples. Um, probably our personal passion is for people of the Islamic faith, Muslims, um, but now we're also doing a lot of work among Buddhists and Hindus and Sikhs as well. I grew up in a really small town in South Carolina, never dreamed I would live in urban centers around the world. Um, but God's plans were surprising, but also have been really great for us. And so we're just thrilled that we have the opportunity to live in a place like New York and try to be good news and share good news and build community with those who historically have been very far from the gospel. Thanks, Brad. Can you tell us just a little bit about how you met Jesus and maybe a little bit about your family as well? So I came to faith in Christ as a young child. I think I was six years old. I remember very vivid memories. Um, just It's been a couple of weeks, honestly, where I had this realization that just because my family and my parents and my grandparents had a relationship with Christ and were going to heaven, that I knew, even though I knew all of those things, I knew all the tenets of the faith, I knew I just had never placed my faith in Jesus. And so there's a night I prayed, talked with some folks, and shared that I just really wanted to be a follower of Jesus and uh, put my faith in Him then. A few years later, kind of fell away from the Lord, but around my senior year in high school, 
there was a group of students that started just really having a really dynamic faith that was impacting our school. And um, it was really enticing to me, and I connected with them and really rededicated my life to the Lord. And from there, I really began this journey of trying to serve the Lord, making a lot of mistakes, but really always with a desire to um, follow Him. My family, Sarah and I have three kids. We've been married about 20 years, and we've got a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, and a 14-year-old right now because of the way the birthdays fall. So how did you go from small town South Carolina to being in New York? Why was New York on the map for you? Well, you know, New York really wasn't on the map for me. Um, When I went to college, the church I attended um, had a program called Evangelism Explosion. And honestly, for me, even though I'd grown up in the church, it was the first time someone had ever sat, really shown me how to share the gospel and given me, just let me watch and come alongside. And that really sparked something in me. And I spent a summer in Africa shortly thereafter. And for the first time in my life, I met people who had never heard the name of Jesus. And it made a huge impact on me. So much so, I really struggled coming back to the States. Through all that, I ended up going to seminary and doing a missions degree. I was one of the early, what they used to call two plus two programs, um, where we would spend a couple of years at seminary and then a couple of years overseas as part and then finishing our seminary degree. And through that, just developed a love for Muslims. Our family served overseas, and then we had some health issues that brought us, and some just family issues that brought us back to the U.S. Because of that, um, we were here trying to figure out what we were going to do. We felt like we needed to stay in the U.S. for some needs within our family. And so at that time, someone said, you know, there's around a million Muslims who live in the greater New York area. Why don't you go check it out? And so we did. We came and visited and three weeks later moved I was bivocational for a while. We received some funding through the North American Mission Board as well as our home church. And then a couple of years later, we ended up um, founding Global Gates just because the sheer need here in the city for missionaries or workers among unreached peoples. Now, people see New York a lot, right? In the news, TV, movies, they typically see selected images, mostly in Manhattan, It's either crime TV shows or it's (laughs) kind of the glitz and glamour of New York. Take us to Queens. What is the New York you see and experience? So I live in Jackson Heights and right on the border between Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, Queens. And so it's a very diverse neighborhood. Elmhurst is the most diverse zip code in North America. I think the last census just in the one, probably one square mile. In that zip code, there was 138 languages spoken on the census. Wow. Um, and so when I, you come to Queens, it's very diverse. One, You can see the world just by walking 10 blocks, it feels like. And really, it's people who have come to America, moved here to try to better their life and better the life of their children, who love America, but also love their own customs and their own people and are trying to maintain some connection to their heritage. And so a lot of people just surviving and living and just all of these people, this feels like the world was thrown into 
very small space, and we're all learning to live together in that space. All of these different people, why do they end up in Queens rather than some of these other places? Why don't they go to Kansas or something where there is more open space? You know, eventually some of them do. Um, But (laughs) historically, you know, New York has been a port of entry. So we have Ellis Island and so many people have come into our country through Ellis Island. And really, um, a lot of people end up coming to New York because they know someone who's already here. They want to come join that family member or they join that community. And, you know, many people don't speak English when they first arrive. And in New York City, there are areas of the city where you can live your whole life without needing to learn English. But it's a great first step for people and it feels a little more like home so they can find food they want to buy they can find restaurants that look familiar they can find people who speak their language they can find religious places of worship that fit their religion and so it's just a great place for people to have come initially now after people are here for a while oftentimes they will move looking for a better life or looking for a cheaper place to live and that's where you see the diaspora populations spreading out and even to some of the smallest cities in the U.S. Now, you're intentionally focused on reaching groups that have very minimal Christian witness among them. So let's mm-hmm. explore this maybe in, in two parts, the, the why and the how. So in the why, why are you expending all of this effort on those who we may consider resistance, and I've got air quotes up here, um, (laughs) to the gospel. Aren't there just so many needs from those that are not so resistant? Why are you focused in this way? You know, it's a really great question. And, you know, I can, I mean, the simple answer, I think, is because um, God loves these people. And God says one day that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation surrounding the throne, giving worship to the Lamb. But On a more practical level, we came to New York 10 years ago and research had come out about our city. And we found that about 19.5% of our people living in the greater New York City area, metro New York City, were from unreached people groups, meaning people who spoke their language, had their heritage. There was less than 2.5% evangelical Christian among that people group. And what we looked around the city and saw as well was there was a, a number, a number of ministries reaching the majority populations and reaching people who looked a lot like we looked or looked very American. And yet, one fifth of our city was made up of people who had very little access to the gospel. And we started looking around, and yes, if you come to New York City and look here, it's a very spiritual place. I wouldn't say it's very Christian per se, but it's very spiritual. There's a lot of spiritual um, awareness in New York City. You find very few atheists. But even when we were noticing there would be churches on the block, and, and right beside the church would live a Muslim family, but they would they would just pass each other, and people would come into the church and leave the church and never see that person. And we just recognized there was such a need for some some people to come and say, how do we reach the nations that God seems to have brought to us? Um, Acts 17 um, talks about where God changing the, the boundaries so that people might know 
him. And it feels like as we look in, at history and we look at where we are right now in history, God is moving the nations into urban contexts. And we have such an opportunity to show the love of Christ in these contexts where we are free to openly express our faith to people who have, many times have been really protected against the, the message of the love of Jesus. Your statement there about most New Yorkers are, are very spiritual. I, again, I think that's not something that we typically get through kind of the media portrayals of New York City, which is sort of sure. this rough and tumble post-Christian city. But I think just that reality on the ground is so different with all of these people with rich heritage that they're bringing in, and that includes spiritual heritage. Yes. Yeah, that's an amazing opportunity. 19.5%. I love the specificity <laughs> of that statistic. So that represents actually about 4.5 million people. You know, the majority of those, I would say a little over 2 million would be Jewish groups. Okay. Because we're such a Jewish city. Yeah. Um, then Muslims would number a little over a million. Um, Buddhists, I mean, would be six, 650,000 or better around half a million Hindus, and then we've got 100,000 Sikhs and then others as well. But wow. just, you know, the nations that are here in quite large numbers. Yeah, I mean, those are whole cities, really. They could yeah, be. <laughs> sure. Now, sometimes this kind of work is labeled diaspora missions. It's said that 272 million people are living outside their countries of origin, and a hefty percentage of that number are living in cities. So why is diaspora missions important for the church to think about? Like, what would you have to say to the church? You mentioned earlier the church is somewhat overlooking these folks that are maybe right next to them. So what would you have to say to the church? Well, you know, I would think I know many, many people from these groups who've come to faith because of the church. Mm. And so, so grateful for what the church has done in reaching diaspora people groups. But I think, you know, even as we read scripture, there is so much in scripture around diaspora. I mean, the Jewish people were a diaspora people for the longest time. And we have so many commands to love the immigrant, to love those who, to care for the outsider. And so, you know, one thing we find is when someone transplants themselves out of a majority context, so let's say they lived in an area where 90% of their neighbors were Muslim, and all of a sudden they throw themselves into a place like New York City, they're very much open to trying to find what is truth. They're, they're being bombarded by a lot of different information that they've never experienced before. And God has commanded us to make his name known to the nations. And many of our churches, actually, many of our traditional brick-and-mortar churches are finding themselves being surrounded now by people from other countries. And I feel like we have this obligation because God is, is he's so blessed us with the knowledge of the love of Jesus and the experience of experiencing Jesus that we have a responsibility, even as Paul said, he felt compelled, he felt obligated because of the grace of God, to we need to take the gospel to those who haven't heard. Now, I'm very much aware it's not that's not the easiest thing to do. 
We don't know their language. We don't know their customs. They're not quote unquote like us sometimes. And yet they're children God created and God loves them. He loves us no more than he loves them. And as his children, we should have the heart and the mind of God who, you know, I think if you really search scripture, you see God is a missionary God. He, he doesn't sit back and just let people enter into eternity based on themselves. He, he goes after the lost sheep. He goes and he goes after those who are far from him because he created them. And even though they don't know him yet, they are still his children. That's good. Yeah. I think just in, in terms of if I were to try to read into maybe what a skeptic might be asking at this point, you know, sure. they might be thinking about how to reach your city. The natural logic would be to reach those who represent the majority of the city and that through them, through that dispersed church, they might be able to reach the whole city. Instead, you guys have really said, we're going to leave that to others and we're going to go towards the the peripheries of the city, if you will, although nearly 20% of a city is not necessarily that periphery. But why have you chosen this track instead of maybe saying we could work through the existing church and, and see if they can do these outreaches? You've sort of said, we're going to tackle this straight on and then invite the church to join us. Is that a fair assessment? I would say it's both and. Okay. You know, we have sister ministries that are doing exactly what you said, trying to reach the majority, and through the majority, it disperses out. And we bless them, and we work with them, and we offer trainings for them. We do a lot of trainings in traditional churches. We assist the local church. But also, we know the easiest place for the gospel to spread is within within the similar cultural ethno-linguistic group. We've seen that around the world. So to bring it into terms that maybe is simpler to understand or look at, the most effective person to reach a Fortune 500 businessman is probably another Fortune 500 businessman. Or the most effective person to reach a housewife who speaks Spanish and never leaves her neighborhood is another housewife who lives next door to her speak Spanish and never leaves her neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah. Or the best person to reach a feminist, left-leaning political person is probably another feminist, left-leaning political person. And we see this, especially when you think about ethno-linguistic groups. So one thing we found is oftentimes we think we're sharing the gospel with someone, but what we think we're sharing is not what's being understood. What I mean by that is, you know, if I share with a Hindu who believes there's hundreds of thousands of gods and say, you need to just put your faith in Jesus and he will forgive your sins and then you'll be guaranteed paradise. They may say, yes, I would love that. I want that. I'm just going to put him on the wall next to my other three gods that I worship and think they've got it. And so oftentimes, you know, we learned this when you get married, you realize that what you said is not always what's interpreted or what is received. Or we learn this with our kids. We learn everywhere. It's very much so, even more so when you're crossing cultures. So there is value in understanding a culture, understanding a people, 
understanding the way they, they see the world so that we can speak the gospel in a way that might sound strange to my own ears, but is actually communicating the message that I'm trying to communicate. And the other thing is we found if we require people to become Western and join a Western church or join a Western mode of worshiping Jesus, that will always feel foreign to them. They're not worshiping or um, studying or experiencing Jesus within their own context. And so, truthfully, we're going straight to those people sometimes because there's no one else doing it. But also, I think there's value in saying the gospel is not only for Western English-speaking people. Mm. The gospel is for you. And truthfully, the most effective thing we can do, I can do as an outsider, is I find someone who's in that culture who maybe is a former Hindu or a former Muslim who has come to faith in Christ. Maybe I led them to faith. Maybe they came another way. But then I become their chief cheerleader, equipper, empowerer to empower them to say, God wants to use you to see all of your people come to know Christ, and how can I help you? Mm. And so, truthfully, there is a role for an outsider like me, but those who are going to make or break a whole group coming to faith are those who are within the culture, who God's got to give them a burden to take the gospel to their own people. And I think a lot of folks maybe don't realize quite to the extent that these communities, very specific cultural or linguistic communities in a place like New York, remain very intact. Like you said very earlier, much. you can maybe be raised, born and raised in New York and still not really learn English. You can operate fully in another language in that neighborhood. And I know we've seen that in San Francisco and LA as well, you know, where, you know, Chinatown in San Francisco where really the, the shops there, it's Cantonese or, or, or nothing, you know? Yeah, um, sure. And so to be able to see the church grow up in those communities, it's going to take something that is uniquely designed for that group, right? It really is. I mean, we don't want to add additional things to the gospel or requirements for people to be able to hear the gospel that you must learn English, you must you must understand our culture so that you can hear the gospel. Jesus didn't do that. Now, let's shift gears a little bit to the how. Some estimate over 800 languages are spoken in New York City. You mentioned earlier yes. just one census track or one zip code as 138 languages. Some of these languages are indigenous and even like to remote communities in distant lands. So how sure. do you go about, you know, you've you started this a little bit by talking about I finding did. insiders. How do you go about reaching people from different cultural, religious, and linguistic backgrounds? Truthfully, everything we do comes from Scripture, or at least we hope it does. That's our goal. And Jesus teaches us that I think oftentimes in the North American context, we have really high lifted up this desire to say, are you Christian? Have you made it to how many Christians are there? But Jesus talks a lot about making disciples, not just Christians. And I think even in our churches, oftentimes we've 
looked and said, the pastoral staff, they're the ones who do the work for ministry. But if you look at the New Testament, if you even look at Ephesians, and Paul talks about, he, we have apostles and teachers and pastors and all these for the purpose of equipping the saints, basically for the purpose of equipping regular people like you and me to be disciples. And so the way we try to reach those different people groups are we ask and we, we, we learn. We, we're learners and we try to, we learn language, we learn culture, but also as we share, when we have some, find someone who wants to know Christ, from the very moment they become a follower of Jesus, we have them start thinking about how God is going to use them to reach their families and their friends. And we we really come alongside them as their coach in some sense, not as the person who does all the ministry for them. So I think Jesus teaches us the way you go from a small group to a large group um, quickly is you make disciples. Who make disciples? Who make disciples? Who make disciples? And I think that's really our hope. Um, and re- to reach large numbers of people is that the gospel will spread through the new believers. To dig a little bit deeper there, you're looking for, because you obviously aren't conversant in all these languages. So you're looking for- <laughs> No, not at all. <laughs> for people who are maybe bridged people that exactly. maybe will be able to converse with you in English. So your discipleship might be in English, whereas you're really working to equip them to then localize it or or translate that discipleship into exactly. these other languages. Exactly. And you know, that's different in depending on what city you're in. In New York City, we have a lot of first-generation immigrants who really need discipleship materials, need teaching, need church in their language. Our team in Houston, Texas, though, for example, is working a lot with South Asians from Pakistan and others. They are finding more people are, are being more, they, they're more, um, what's the word? They're, they're happier in English than they are in maybe Urdu. Are they, because okay. they've done schooling in English, they live, they're living their life, they've, they're more assimilated, so they're more comfortable using English. That's an interesting dynamic. So what is your goal then in, in New York? What, is, what are you hoping to see happen? So our goal is that the gospel would take root among these unreached people groups and would spread, and not only spread in New York, one of the struggles we have here sometimes is people are so transient, but it's also yeah, a strength. Yeah, very transient. Yeah, it's also a strength because if we make a disciple here who moves away, they take the. we feel like we can mimic the book of Acts. So as they were dispersed, they took the gospel with them. Um, yeah. And so really our goal is that we would reach people here and those that are reached here would become disciples and own that vision themselves. And not only plant the church here, but plant the church back home into their countries um, of origin, which many are very restricted access to missionaries or outsiders, um, but they have access there. And then ultimately, you know, would spread around the world. So that's really our goal is to see churches planted that multiply not only here, but back into the countries of origin. Have you seen both of those things happen? Yes. Honestly, it's been it's, it's kind of inc- really exciting, you know, to watch people come to faith here and then they share the gospel back with all their family members. And, you know, this time in history, especially now, every, 
probably six months ago, half of our listeners had never heard of Zoom. Um, much maybe <laughs> right. they'd heard of Skype or something. Yeah. But I mean, we're having right now, for example, there's a group of former Muslims from Bangladesh that are meeting on Zoom every day for two hours um, from around the world. And they're baptizing, they're and it's and they're having local fellowships in Dubai and London and Bangladesh and New York. Wow. And and so what we're seeing is people through media or through social media and technology being able to share with family back home who come to faith. And then because of networks, we're able to connect them with people around them who can help them then grow. Wow, that's amazing. Technology can be used mightily for the sake of the gospel. Sure. Uh, this gets into a little bit of the weeds here in terms of as you're looking out at the unreached of New York and your your focus is South Asians, right? Sure. Do you see people divide themselves more around ethnicity or religious background? Here in New York City, we it's you know different groups are do it differently. Some groups are very insular and only associate with people from their group. Some groups, let's say, use that example of Tibetans, Bhutanese Tibetans, Tibetans from mainland China, Tibetans from who've come through India, Tibetans who are Mustang, who are from Nepal. Many of them all eat in the same restaurants. They, mm. they will worship in the same place, house of worship. Because even in, you know, if you were to think about Tibetans in China, you've got the main Tibetan groups, and then you have the tribal Tibetan groups that are all very different. But in New York, yes, there is some separation, but many times we can go for a larger group. And some of that's just the way people interact. And because they're forced to, there's less of them or there's less places for them to interact. And so that is one advantage is we can touch many different groups sometimes with one strategy. But, I mean, it is still, it's difficult because we don't define those relationships. They define that relationship. Yeah, the community right. defines it. And really, sometimes we want to say they're more integrated than they are. And so a lot of that is just trying to learn from them. Yeah. And in some ways, the the city compresses some of those distinctives. I think maybe when I hear that, though, one of the potential misgaps, maybe is the best word, is that there are still some groups maybe you haven't identified that maybe they are from Bangladesh and they're not being connected to socially through the networks that you have, uh, but they still are there. How do you? How would you go about identifying those gaps? Sure. I mean, a lot of times it's um, from within the community, asking people in the community. One way is that we just ask, but the other way is that by the people we meet. And so I met a man who was from Balochistan, from Pakistan, and mm-hmm. I didn't know there was very many people from Baloch. Let's just on here. So I start talking with him and he says, yeah, we have a community and tells me about the community and we try to connect into that community, mm. um, which is very different than, let's say, you know, the Punjabi Pakistanis right. who are the majorities living here. And a lot of times so we'll look at restaurants, we'll look at houses of worship, we'll look at people we know within the community. 
And we also are doing, have really started doing a lot with social media. Um, mm. And that's helping us find a whole uh, entirely other group of people than we normally had met with. Tell me a little bit more about that. Okay, so I'm running a pilot project right now, and I've partnered. I've brought in five different mission organizations who are reaching Bangladeshi speakers in New York City. We found that 95% of Bengalis use Facebook. The next closest use would be YouTube. Is like three percent use YouTube daily. And then 2%. And so we've started doing outreach on social media because everyone, people within the community are so connected. And so we started, it was maybe God's providence, but we got a lot of training from some folks who had been doing this in the Middle East and Northern Africa, um, how we would use social media to find people who are hungry for Christ and then bring them into discipling relationships face to face. We did training in January and we kicked off in February with this pilot project and then COVID hit, obviously, which drastically Mm. changed ministry. But we're able to, through social media, it's fairly cheap and we're hitting, we're, we're every day there's something on social media. We usually have a campaign that we pay. I think it's costing us maybe $500 a month. Is what we're spending on it, That's which is targeted probably more advertising, in, basically targeted advertising that would go only to Bengali speakers. Yeah, and that links them either to our web to a web page or to um, private message us. Okay, and from that, then we're able to. So the great thing about that is most of our ads are hitting about thirteen to fourteen percent of our population are watching a minute or longer wow. on a video. So we're able. For you know, seventeen cents per view of whatever it is, we can share the full gospel to someone, and then they have access to the Bible. They have access to talk to us, and what we've seen from that has been people start private messaging us with our Bengali team part teammates. They write back. Some have come to faith. We set up. We start doing discipleship through Zoom which then becomes face-to-face meeting. We've had, since March, I think, six baptisms that have come out of that. And all of this when in the middle of COVID, which has been a really wonderful thing for us. And we we really went and tried to learn about social media because we looked at our community. Everyone was connected on social media, but we weren't in the middle of that. And so we had to learn how to get into that. Having been in New York for the last 10 years— What's something, what's a way that you've seen God work uh, besides what you've already shared? Perhaps something that you weren't expecting in terms of how God would work. I'd say probably the most recent things would be how God's worked in the, in the, this crisis of coronavirus. So over the first three months or four months that it, we, when coronavirus hit our city, our unreached people groups were hit really hard. Mm. So everyone we know that's a missionary here has friends who have died of coronavirus. Wow. Just in our Bangladeshi community alone, I know there was at least 400 deaths Wow! Um, in the first three months. Um, but what's strange is it really shut down ministry in some sense. It felt like it did. But I saw that where God surprised me has been in two ways. Our team started doing a lot of benevolence ministry, helping people who are hungry, giving food, giving 
food money for groceries and people had donated, given money for us to be able to do that. And trying to pair not only, I think sometimes we create a dichotomy between church planting and social ministry that I'm not certain is biblical. Um, <laughs> I would agree. And, and so we're, the surprise has been, we have neglected doing some social being, being the church to people just by trying to plant the church sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's been, a, this really convicted me about that as well as I've watched many of our missionaries be on, I've seen some of them have gifts much more in line with some benevolence and social benevolence than even more so than church planting, but they've been able to pair the, these giftings they have together. So that's been really surprising. And really, I think it's been life-giving for some people. The other thing would be that through social media and what God's done through all these networks, really in the last six months, we've seen more churches planted and more salvations than we did this time last year when we were free to go out and share the gospel door to door face to face. Wow. And just that the use and the ability to meet I feel like everything we do is sifting for people that the Holy Spirit has already been convicting of their sin. Mm. And social media has given us a whole new tool to be able to have access and find people who God's been at work in their hearts. And so that's been really exciting to watch people who you would think come from a third world country. They wouldn't understand media as well as those of us from a first world country. And yet they do. <laughs> they, under, they understand how to use community, how to use the community aspect of social media mm. to not only share the gospel, but re wrestle with people who are questioning and then help them, you know, nurture them to salvation. So that's been really exciting to watch. I think we have a lot to learn, especially from people who come from a less individualistic culture and a yeah. much more community-minded culture. We have so much to learn, even as we think about church. They really have a deeper understanding of what church's community is than sometimes many of us. So do. jumping on that, you mentioned several churches have been planted even during this COVID time. Can you describe what that looks like for us? Sure. Um, it's very non-traditional at this point because of coronavirus, but it's groups that are meeting on Zoom. Okay. Every day, their average is around 75 people join this Zoom call. Every day? They, every Five days a week, okay. Monday through Friday, Wow. 10 till noon Eastern. And they join three days a week. Someone shares their testimony and then they all pray together. Two days a week, someone preaches then they have a women's group that's come out of that, a youth group that meets out of that. And when new believers come to faith, they sift them off into a smaller group for discipleship for a new believer. And so it's been, it's, you know, those kind of things are really, that's, that's the, probably the majority have been like online. We've also seen some churches here in New York City start being more apartment churches so they can't gather in large groups, but you can gather with groups in your apartment. Yeah. And so someone who's come to faith, maybe through benevolence, they start meeting and they're just meeting in, in their apartment with, you know, less than 12 people. Okay. Or so, you know. Yeah. And so that's kind of what it's been. But it's really going to be interesting to see how coronavirus really affects the church at large when 
you know, so many churches. I know some mega churches are doing nothing but house groups until 2021. Um, yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see how that really, what we take away from that in 2022 and 2023 and 2024. Right. How that impact of the church being scattered um, really impacts the church at large. What are the biggest challenges you face? You know, I think one thing in North America we're struggling with, maybe not in New York City per se, but where most of our support comes from or things in, you know, southern cities or Midwestern cities and not is the political climate as well, mm. um, where that feels the church has aligned itself oftentimes with an anti-immigrant, anti basically an anti-immigrant platform and people feeling that feeling unloved the immigrants feeling unloved and thinking those people don't like me and that's something we have to really work to overcome yeah what are some ways you've tried to overcome that the great thing is when people meet people are always suspicious of someone who's different from them Mm. but when they meet or talk with someone all of a sudden you realize people are people yeah no matter where you're from, we all want our children to do well. We all want to provide for our families. We're all trying to do the best we can in this life. And so sometimes it's just exposure. Sometimes it's telling their story. Um, sometimes it's helping the church realize, you know, those people that you have such a passion for overseas, they don't all of a sudden become the enemy when they move here. They're the same people you knew overseas when yeah. you took a mission trip and you loved them there and now they're here. <laughs> right. And God has such a heart for the lost. And he doesn't see the lost in terms of pol- politics. He doesn't see them in terms of, um, you know, just struggle. He sees them as people who need Jesus. And I think if we can really start seeing people they're not acting a certain way because they hate us or they or they're evil. Oftentimes, they're just, I mean, they need Christ and they're acting a certain way because that's all they've ever known. Yeah. And I would say the same for us. You know, we're we're espousing beliefs because that's all I've ever known. Right. And yet, sometimes, I'm I'm really convicted, even in my own racism or my own ethnocentrism, and when I look at how I judge people instead of seeing them at Christ season. Pitch us on, on global cities. What is global cities up to around the world? And what, just give us some highlights there. Oh, you mean global gates? I, global gates. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Right now we've got some huge needs on the West coast. We could really use missionaries on the West coast. There's so many, I know you've lived there and you know, the needs and opportunities out West and, Man, we just, we're very narrow, very thin on the West Coast. So yeah. if anyone's interested in reaching into LA, San Francisco, Fremont, those areas, we would love to talk with you. Vancouver, just really trying to see right now, we're just kind of really looking, reevaluating what does ministry look like in a coronavirus world and how do we do that successfully and not only successfully in terms of numbers, but also how do we help missionaries thrive? Um, you know, I, yeah. it's just, it's a different world. I think as well as we look at how do we make certain that we're um, presenting Christ in a way that's really 
for this time and this season. Um, that's been something we've been looking at. As we're wrapping up, what are some things that maybe that you haven't been able to highlight that you would love to to say to those working in cities around the world? Uh, what would you want to highlight? I would say, especially to the listener who is, maybe they're just an, uh, a Christian living in a city, working a secular job, going, what can I do? I can't tell you how many people I know who are from an unreached people group who came to know the Lord because someone they worked with cared about them. Mm. And if you've lived in an urban city long enough, you recognize that most people in cities are lonely. Mm. Um, You're surrounded by people, but you're not known by anyone. Yeah. And I would say people don't be afraid to just build a relationship with someone who's different than you. You know, your doctor, your kids, your kids' friend from school, their parents. Um, how can you build a relationship where you care about them, genuinely care about them, and they'll care about you? And in that relationship, I would encourage you, don't hide who you are in Christ. Yeah, that's a good word. Anything you would recommend or promote for our listeners? Sure. Um Again, kingdom.training, I think, is huge. I would really also encourage anyone who's listening, especially if you're in North America, there's a website called blesseveryhome.com. I think it's huge. You can go on there, and if you register as an individual, they will start sending you the names of your 100 closest neighbors, five names a day for you to pray for. Okay. And you can start praying for your neighborhood. You can also, you can go in and tag when you've prayed for that person. And then you can tag if you've met them. You can tag, you, you can just oh, wow. create, start looking at a way for you to actually start spreading the love of Christ in your neighborhood. I love that website because I get to, um, <laughs> I just always, I get to know the na- names of my neighbors and I can pray for them. Thanks, Brad, for taking the time to share with us. I know this was probably only the tip of the iceberg, but thank you for sharing us the tip of the iceberg with what you guys are doing. And we're excited about how God is using you guys in New York and as such throughout the world, really. Thank you for for being with us. Thanks, Michael. It's been really great talking with you. Thanks again to Brad Wall for taking the time to be our guest. This episode is our last one for the year. We'll be back again next year with a new season of episodes. Thank you for listening. If you would, take a moment to share the podcast with others and leave a review on whatever podcatcher you use to listen. Mission City is hosted by me, Michael Crane, and produced by Radius Global Cities Network and Scott Slusher. Today's episode was written by me and Scott Slusher. May God bless you during this season where we remember the coming of Christ into our broken and sinful world. Merry Christmas, and see you next year.